Um, Let me pray and then we'll jump into this passage. So, Lord, thank you so much for uh, thank you for this prayer that we get to look at today. And Lord, I pray that as we look at it, um, it would teach us to pray this for one another. Uh, Lord, we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. So the first time I ever went whitewater rafting was uh, on the Arkansas River going through Royal Gorge in Colorado. Um, I almost I did almost die, actually, which is another story for another day. Unless you want to hear it. Do you want to hear it? Okay. It's your fault when this sermon is long, okay? This will be your fault. Um, We actually, we didn't go with like, uh, yeah, you see that picture up there? That's nothing like what we did. That's like an organized group tour with professionals. We met a guy in a coffee shop who was like, I got a boat, I'll take you down. And uh, the boat was about half that size. And so there are five of us in this boat. And you know... if you, has anybody been whitewater rafting? There's always the one person who doesn't pull their weight. You know who I'm talking about? Well, that guy was sitting uh, in the front on the right, and it wasn't me. I was sitting in the front on the left next to him, and which is really weight proportion was just bad. Like, what's this guy thinking? Because he was small, and I was the biggest. I don't know what this guy was thinking. But anyway, we're, we're, going, uh, we're about to hit this class five rapid, which is the highest class of rapids there is. And he's, he goes, uh, I can't remember, like dig or something, I don't know. He's like telling us to row. And so we're like going for it, going for it. Because if we don't hit it right, we're going to hit and land on top of a rock. And then if we spin around backwards, that's it, we're dead. And so the rest of us are just digging in. And the other guy's just kind of like, you know, just barely, not, not, maybe not even touching the water. And so we hit the rock. We get stuck on the rock. And the guide, guide, will say, says words that are not appropriate to say in church. We then spin around and we dump into a class five rapid backwards. Um, And we're just getting spun through this whole thing. We end up hitting the wall and bouncing off the wall. And somehow we made it out safely. And he told me later that people had died in that part of the river. Well, I won't tell you the rest. Um, Anyway, so this sermon is not long because you wanted to hear that story. Obviously, we made it through. We're still alive. But the point is, (laughs) the point of telling you that. is uh, the, the Royal Gorge is a canyon. It's a really narrow canyon. You put that back up. You can leave it up there. Um, and this is what it looks like from below. Um, and uh, the walls are so high and it's so narrow. As you're going through it, it almost feels like you're downtown walking through the skyscrapers. It's like just massive walls on either side. And it's dumbfounding to think about how something like that is made. Do you know how it's made? Uh, geologists call the process of creating a canyon like that, they call it downcutting. And downcutting happens as a river uh, cuts down into the earth, uh, slowly eroding away the rock. And uh, which means a canyon like that is created very, 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 very slowly over a very, 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 very long time. Now, I want you to hold on to that particular image of this river downcutting into and creating a canyon. Because what we're talking about today in this series of sermons on the book of Colossians is how a person actually grows into spiritual maturity. And uh, what we see in this book is that spiritual maturity actually happens like this. It happens slowly over time. Um, nobody's ever been discipled overnight. And so it happens slowly. And what we see... Um, when actually here at Christ Church, we talk about it uh, as a well-worn path, uh, or we rob the phrase that Eugene Peterson robbed from Nietzsche, 
uh, when he says Christian maturity comes about through a long obedience in the same direction. That's the picture. That's the image. It's a well-worn path slowly over time. And very specifically, what our passage today shows us is that prayer uh, is, is the thing that makes it happen. Prayer is what makes spiritual growth come about. Um, and if you're like me, and if you're like most Christians, as soon as I bring up prayer, you start to squirm, don't you? You're like, oh my gosh, it's going to make me feel guilty. Uh, and that could be either because, A, you've tried praying and it just, you know, didn't work. Uh, or B, you feel guilty about your current lack of prayer in your day-to-day life. And so either way, I bring this up and, and maybe you're starting to squirm a little bit. Uh, maybe you're feeling a little bit of anxiety about that. But it does, we don't have to feel that way. Uh, because the passage that we're looking at today is so utterly practical when it comes to prayer. And so just stick with me through uh, the whole sermon. And in the end, I think you'll find that you'll want to go home and pray. And more than that, you'll actually want to go home and do that every day. Uh, and so there's a lot going on in here. And so we're going to look at it in actually five parts today. So five of them, uh, which means we're going to move through them all pretty quickly. Uh, so part one, who do we pray to? Part two, who to pray for? Part three, how often to pray, part four, what to pray, and then part five, why God answers our prayers. And so let's just jump in, part one, uh, who we pray to, and just look down in verse 13, towards the end of our uh, paragraph that we're looking at, because uh, it says in there that we pray to a king. Do you see that? It says, he, God, brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, the kingdom. Uh, and this is talking about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And actually, if you look down at the very next paragraph, which we'll look at next week, it says that all thrones, that every throne was created by him. And it was created for him. And that he is before, meaning he is above, meaning he's greater than all things. And so what's that saying? It's saying that Jesus Christ is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, There is no king greater than him. And uh, one commentator points out that if you look at these two paragraphs together, the one that we're looking at today and then the one we'll look at next week, it tells us about a holistic kingship of Christ. And the paragraph we're going to look at next week actually tells us about the kingship of Christ that is. It just is that way. Um, It's actually talking about his cosmic kingship, the creator of all things, the one before all things, the image of the invisible God, you know, he's, he's the firstborn over all creation, that he is king. That is the kingdom that is. It has been for all eternity. It will be for all eternity. That he is the king, the cosmic king. But the paragraph we're looking at actually tells us about a kingship that can be. This paragraph is talking about a personal kingship. That yes, he is the king of the cosmos, but also he can be your king. King of your personal life. And when he is that, when you allow him to be king of your personal life, boy, is there power in your prayer life. But before we see what it is to have Christ as your personal king, just look at one aspect of him being the cosmic. I want to see this. And I'm cheating on next week's uh, passage, but that's okay. Uh, We're going to do it anyway. Look down at verse 17. It says this. um, I think it's on the screen too. It says, in him, in Christ the king, the one whose kingdom we've been brought into, in him, all things hold together. 
And what that, just that little phrase shows us is not only does he have all authority over everything, not only is he the ruler of everything, but to say that in him all things hold together means that he has agency over everything. That to have agency means you have the ability to act and to produce a result. And so when it says that this cosmic king also is the one who in him all things are held together, it means he can act on it. And what verses 13 and 14 tell us, that it's that cosmic king, the one up on the throne, with the authority and the agency, is also your personal king. A personal king who cares about you. Who cares about what you care about. Your tears, your laughter, your thoughts, your worries, your failures, your successes. And just keep that in mind. I want to show you something over in the book of Hebrews. Look at what it says about you and me and our relationship to this king who's on the throne. The cosmic king who has all power and all agency. Uh, Look at this, Hebrews uh, chapter 4, we can put that up. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. There's only one thing I want you to see, and there's a lot there, just one thing to see for today. Notice that he has empathy. Do you see that in there? We have a high priest who empathizes with our weaknesses. Empathy is different than sympathy, right? Empathy means I share your feelings. I feel what you feel, or I have felt what you feel. I I know the, the feeling that you're feeling, I felt it. That's empathy. Sympathy means I feel sorry for your feelings. I'm not feeling what you're feeling. I haven't felt what you feel, but I feel sorry that you feel that way. It's not that sympathy is bad. It's just different. But notice that this king has empathy. Because he's gone through what you're going through. He feels what you're feeling. And in the pantheon of all the gods, he's the only one who does that. But here's the amazing part, verse 16, here in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so what that means is, we actually get to come to that throne where the cosmic king is seated, the one who has agency to do all things. We come to that throne not sheepishly, confidently. And when we do, what do we receive? We receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Now, back to our verses in Colossians. That is the kingdom and the the king that we've been brought to. A kingdom where the cosmic king is also our personal king. And just think of the access. The Christian can walk unencumbered, unquestioned, confidently straight to the king and ask for anything. Share any worry, share any fear, any anxiety, celebrate any victory. Give thanks for any gift at any time, night or day. And he listens 
with empathy. And so if you can come to him, why wouldn't you? So that's who we pray to. Now, part two, who to pray for. And the obvious answer to this is anyone and everyone, right? There's not a person who doesn't need prayer. And so should you pray for yourself? Yes, of course, you should pray for yourself. Uh, Should you pray for your family? Yes, pray for them. Should you pray for your friends who aren't yet Christians? Yes, pray for them. Should you pray for the sick like we did earlier? Yes. Should we pray for the suffering, the oppressed, the poor? Yes, we should pray. In fact, the Bible gives us many, many examples of us needing to do that. But Paul models something for us that is, I think, less obvious, uh, at least less obvious to me. Uh, Look closely at who else we should pray for. Verse 9 For this reason, since the day we heard about you, that's the key word here, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Now, who is the you that he's talking about? Is he talking about his family? Is he talking about some people who are sick? Is he talking about the suffering? No. Who's he talking about? Well, back in the previous uh, verses, he's talking about the saints, the Christians who live in Colossae. In other words, who's he praying for? He's praying for Christians. And so who should we pray for? Christians. Now, maybe that seemed obvious to you, but it did not seem obvious to me uh, until I started looking at this passage over the last couple of weeks. And of course, the sick need prayer and the suffering and the non-Christians. And of course, everybody needs prayer. But the Bible makes it obvious um, also that Christians need prayer. And that's what really struck me, because I'm like, what other, like, shouldn't their own prayers cover their own needs? Like, why do I need to pray for them? Like, they got it. They can talk to you. They don't need me to talk to you about them. And yet, Paul is praying for these Christians. And notice the main goal of these prayers, by the way, and we'll get more into this in a few minutes, but the main goal of these prayers, just scanning through the rest of the paragraph, is to be filled with knowledge and wisdom and understanding. It's to live a life that is worthy of the Lord. It's to be able to bear fruit. It's to be strengthened. It's to have endurance and patience. It's to become thankful. Now, I look at that list and I'm like, well, those are all the hard things. (laughs) To have knowledge and wisdom and strength and endurance and patience and being, those are all the hard things. So if you look at that list, you think, yeah, actually, I do need someone to pray for me for those things. And really what this is getting at is about maturity. And so what's implied in Paul's prayer is that, get this, Paul believed that his prayers worked together with God to bring about the maturity of these Christians. Let's sit with that for a second. That Paul actually thought his prayers joined together with the work of God to bring about the maturity in these other people. And just stated more plainly, when you and I pray for another Christians, our prayers are working together with what God is doing in their life. We're joining with God in what he's doing. Let me put that one more way. I can't become more mature. I can't become more knowledgeable of God's will. I can't bear more fruit. I can't have more wisdom. I can't be more uh, enduring and patient and thankful without another person praying for me. And you can't become those things without somebody praying for you. 
That's what's being implied here. And so if we, if our church, want to reach full maturity in Christ, then I need to pray for you. You need to pray for me. And each of you needs to pray for everyone else. And so that's who we're praying to. So let's keep stacking this together. Who do we pray to? The King of Kings. Who do we pray for? We pray for one another. And then the next question becomes, well, how often? And that's part three, how often to pray. And notice now how often we need to pray for one another. Again, we're still in verse nine. I promise we're going to get through the rest of these. But in verse nine, he says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God, and then he gives the whole list of the things that he asked God for. And so follow this. From the day he heard about them, he and Timothy, from that day, they started praying for these Christians in Colossae. And they haven't stopped. Now, another way of translating that would be, I love this. Uh, from that day, we have not restrained ourselves from praying for you. It's like prayer without constraint. I like that image. I also like the way the NIV translates the, the next statement there where he says we continually ask God because what that translation is doing is actually showing us the verb form there implies an ongoing continual action. So it's a asking, 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 asking. And so how often are they praying? Well, I don't think it's saying that that's all they do from morning till night every day. Uh, clearly it's not because he had time to write this letter. But I do think the best way to interpret this is every day. And so when he says we've not stopped praying, we continually ask God for these things. I think what he's saying is consistently every day they take a few minutes to pray for these Christians who live in a city that they've never visited. People they don't even know. And this is extremely, this is just so helpful when it comes to illustrating for us what the consistency of our prayers ought to be. You know, a lot of times, if you're like me, it goes like this. Well, I prayed once, I prayed twice. Maybe if I'm really going for it, I prayed three times. And then I forgot or it didn't work. But what Paul and Timothy model is that once isn't enough, twice isn't enough, three times isn't enough. It's really hard to know exactly how long Paul and Timothy had been praying for them. But I don't think we're talking about days or weeks or months. I think we're talking about years. And so we're talking about hundreds of prayers, maybe a thousand or more prayers. And prayers that carried on after the letter was written and sent and delivered. And so the consistency that I want us to think of is think again of Royal Gorge. And the river that downcut hundreds of feet. And that our prayers for one another ought to be like that. Like downcutting. Like an unceasing flow of a river over the course of days and weeks and months and years and decades, cutting a path of maturity in one another's lives. And so I want my prayers for you. I want our prayers for one another. Selfishly, I want your prayers for me to be like that. Like downcutting. And what this 
passage has showed me as I looked at it for the last few weeks is that our prayers for one another are, listen, they are the primary way that we come alongside one another for maturity. Because think about it. I can have a conversation with you and I can be like, hey, let me help you understand this part of the Bible. Let me encourage you with this. Or I can have a conversation with the King of Kings about you. And what's more effective? Um, Tim Keller, who uh, was a pastor and scholar in New York City, um, and uh, he actually, he wrote, he literally wrote the book on prayer, like he stole the best title for a book on prayer. The title is Prayer. Like, come on, Tim, no one else can do that now. Like, you did it. That's it. Um, But anyway, in that book, he he actually begins the book um, by just sort of admitting the um, weakness in his own uh, adult life uh, in prayer. And I actually find his story very encouraging uh, because, again, he's the guy who wrote the book on prayer. Uh, his sermons have been listened to by millions. His books read by millions. Um, and, uh, you know, he's maybe one of the greatest examples of a Christian in the modern era. Um, and yet he says that for the first half of his adult life, he didn't pray very well or very consistently at all. And then he admits that uh, in about 1999, he started to go through some personal challenges, some sickness and uh, his own life and uh, family members. And then uh, not long after that, 9-11 happened. And again, he's from New York City. And so um, they were just struggling. And his wife came to him and said, uh, hey, we need to pray together every night or we're just not going to make it. And uh, to convince him, he recounts what his wife, Kathy, said to him. And he says, she said something along these lines. Imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill, every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that. You would never miss or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget you would never miss. And Kathy says, well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray We can't let it just slip our minds. And that is helpful enough, but I love how Keller then reflects on it. Many years later, uh, he says they did it every night. And uh, he eventually kind of started to add more prayers throughout the day. And then reflecting on it decades later in his book on prayer, where he's like, this is how to do it. Here's what he said about that experience. And this is what I find most encouraging when it comes to developing an everyday, like a river, down-cutting a canyon, consistent prayer life. Here's what he said. He said, the changes took some time to bear fruit. But after sustaining these practices for about two years, I began to have some breakthroughs. Two years, 24 months, 730 days. I don't know how many hours. It was only after that that then, he says, we started to have some breakthroughs. Which means even after two years, he wasn't done. So, how often should we pray? Every day. And when should we quit? Never. Now, there's one more thing to note here. And I've mentioned this a couple times already, but Paul and Timothy are praying these prayers for people they've never met. We're talking about people who are hundreds of miles away, probably. And that makes me think we should do that, too. We actually we have a partner church in London called Stockwell Baptist Church. And I call them our church doppelganger uh, because their story is exactly almost like 
our story. Um, they're just about three years ahead of us. And so uh, what if we prayed for them every day? Do you think that would make a difference in their maturity? You bet it would. So let's keep stacking these points up. We pray first to the king of kings. We pray for other Christians. And we do that every day. That then leads us to another question. And the question is, what then should we pray? And so that's part four, what to pray. And just scan back through verses 9 to 12 with me and look at all the things Paul prays for this church. Uh, He starts out in verse 9, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and that that would come through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And then verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. He's talking about their moral character. So that you may please God in every way. And what is it to please God? It's bearing fruit in every good work. It's growing in your knowledge of God. It's being strengthened with all power according to God's God's might, not yours. So that you may have great endurance and patience and be somebody who gives thanks all the time. So that's the list. That's what to pray. And there's two things I want to see in that list. Uh, First is God's will. And uh, this, the whole thing actually can be summed up underneath what it says back in verse 9 when he says, I, we pray continually that you'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Everything else can be summarized under that one heading. And so do you want to know what God's will is for your life? You've been waiting for God to show you? Waiting for the letter? You know, the airplane to write it in the sky or however you think God might do it? Well, here it is. It's right here. Verse 9 tells us where it comes from. It comes from the Holy Spirit's wisdom and understanding. Then in verses 10 to 12, this, here it is. This is God's will for your life. To live a life worthy of the Lord. Right? To have good moral character. To please God in every way. In other words, to, to, to do things that are pleasing to him. Like bearing fruit. Like growing in knowledge of God. Being strengthened having great endurance and patience and being thankful. That's it. There's his will. Finally found it. That's it. And if you're living that way, you are living in God's will. And I think if we're living in that way, we don't need to worry so much about his specific will, about which job to take or which person to marry, how many kids to have or what city to live in or whatever else it might be on your mind. In fact, I think we spend so much time worrying about those things, his specific will, that we forget to pour ourselves into this will. And so if we're growing in wisdom and character and strength and endurance and patience and thankfulness, then guess what? All the other things come along with it. They they tend to sort themselves out. Now, you might think I'm crazy to say that, but you know who else said it? Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't worry about what? Food, drink, clothes, what city to be in. Instead, he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all those things will be added as well. And so that's the first thing I want us to see, that the thing to pray for one another 
and for ourselves is that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, which is to grow in wisdom and character and obedience and good works and endurance and patience and thankfulness. But the second thing I want us to see in here is actually summed up by one word in verse 9. It's the word filled. You see that word there in verse 9? And this word and a couple of derivatives of it are a favorite of Paul's in the first two chapters of this letter. There's six occurrences of this word or version of it. And uh, it means just what it says. It means filled. It means full. There's no, that's it. It just means that. Uh, essentially what it means is you can't get more in there. Now, the best way I could think this week to help us picture it is there's a coffee shop I like to go to that gives free refills, um, and, uh, but only if you stay there and only if you get it in like the mug to stay, right? So if you go there, um, it, after like two cups of coffee, you feel like you paid a, an actual normal amount for a coffee. That's kind of how it works. And, uh, but the thing is, they always fill the mug all the way to the top, like all the way to the very, very tippy top. So much so that, you know how, like, if you fill it so full, you see the liquid, like, curving over the, That's how much they fill it, uh, which would be fine if they were walking around and filling it at your table, but that's not how it works. What you have to do is you take your empty cup, you go to the counter, you say, I'd like some more coffee, please. They say, no problem. They fill it all the way up to the top, and then they hand it to you. And then you have to make it from the counter past lots of people and dogs and children and, you know, all kinds of ruckus going on around you with your cup of coffee, trying not to spill it on your shoes or anyone else. It's a small price to pay for a free refill. But I'll teach you a trick. Uh, a friend of mine who worked for a while as a waiter taught me, uh, he said, hey, when that happens, don't look down at the cup, just look where you're going. And some of you like, have worked in, that, in the hospitality industry and you're nodding your heads because you know this. You don't look at the thing, you look where you're going and then you won't spill. Um, and it works 100% of the time, every time it works until I go to set it down on the table and then it spills everywhere. But it works. And the word filled here is that picture. It's the idea of something filled up like that, like you can't get any more in. And here's what's even more amazing about that word, and we'll see this in next week's passage, but I, just, I need to show you this today. So sorry, I, I continue to cheat on next week's passage, but you'll get over it. Not only does Paul apply this word to you and I, he applies this word to Christ. Look down in verse 19, it says this, and this is speaking of Christ. It says, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And then over in chapter two, verse nine, again, speaking of Christ, he says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And that's the same family of words, the same idea, filled to the brim. You can't get any more in. So in Christ is all the fullness of God, the fullness of deity in bodily form. Christ is God of very God. And excuse the informality of this next statement, but I couldn't think of any more flowery way to say it. That Jesus Christ is so God, you can't get any more in there. But more on that next week and in a few weeks. But I want us to see here that Paul's prayer for the Colossians and by extension for you and I and our prayers for one another that ought to be prayed every day from today until the day that we die is that we would be filled up to the brim so that you can't get any more in and filled with what? Filled with the knowledge of God's will. And what is that knowledge? What is that will? The will is to live a life worthy of the Lord. 
pleasing God in every way, bearing fruit, growing in knowledge of God, being strengthened, having great endurance and patience, and being thankful. Which means, back to our image of the coffee cup, and now I'm mixing my metaphor, so forgive me for mixing the metaphor. (laughs) But if we've filled up with these things, and it did spill out, what would spill out? Moral character. Fruit, knowledge of God, strength, endurance, patience, thankfulness. I love what uh, Cameron said at the end of uh, his sermon last week, that what he wants for his life is that instead of anger and frustration and criticism, I, I might have added criticism, actually. I think I, I think I did. Sorry, you didn't say that. But uh, nat- instead of those things naturally spilling out of him like a fountain, instead, what he would like to have spill out of him is thanksgiving. I like that image. That we'd be so filled with the knowledge of God's will that that's what spills out of us. And so that's what we should pray. That other people should be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And someone should pray that for you. Now, stacking this up, who to pray to? We pray to the King of Kings. Who do we pray for? Other Christians. How often do we pray? Every day. What do we pray? That people will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And that leaves one lingering question. Why would God answer these prayers? And that's down in verses 13 and 14. And just very briefly, uh, and don't forget, this is longer because you made me tell that story at the beginning. But very briefly, the reason is, look at verse 13. Uh, There's that word for. And whenever we see that word, it means that what comes before it is the Uh, or sorry, what comes after it is the reason for everything that came before. Uh, And so the reason that Paul and Timothy can pray the prayers that he just talked about for or because uh, it says he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so why will God answer this prayer? Well, it's because Christ redeemed us. And what is that redemption? That redemption is the forgiveness of our sins. So why will God answer this? It's because Christ suffered for you on your behalf. Christ was crucified. Christ was abandoned. Christ's body was wrapped up and put in a grave. Christ was raised from the dead. Christ ascended to heaven and is seated in the center of the throne for you. And just think about that. If he did that, of course he wants to answer your prayers. Who would go to that length and then be like, peace out? Of course he'll listen to you. He'll answer your prayers to be filled with the knowledge of his will for you. So let's stack this all together now. Who do we pray to? We pray to the King of Kings, the Cosmic King, who's also your personal King. Who do we pray for? One another. How often do we pray? We pray every day. What do we pray? That others would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And why does God answer our prayers? Because Christ redeemed us. Now, just very practically, I don't want to send you out there and just say, okay, go pray now. Because we said at the beginning, you know, maybe you've tried and it just, I don't know, it's just not working for you. Uh, I want to give you some help. 
Some of you have uh, one of these already. Um, we were giving these out back in the fall, um, and I've got a stack more of them today. Um, but this is a day-by-day devotional. The main part, you know, in the middle, it's written by a guy named Glenn Scrivener. Um, but in, on the inside cover, uh, I put some stickers in there for you. Um, not of rainbows and unicorns, but um, of some prayers that you can pray. And this is to help you do that. This is to help you begin to cut that, you know, be down-cutting like a river, um, praying. Um, and there's actually prayer in here at the end that you can pray for our church. And you can use that time, you can springboard off that and pray more prayers for people in our church if you'd like to. But that's there for you. Uh, and it actually just walks through the same four postures that our liturgy walks through. And in the middle, it has you flip to whatever day you're on and read the devotional. Then you come back at the end and there's some more prayers. Um, so there's a bunch of these uh, over on the counter over there. Um, we asked for a $10 donation, uh, and that's just to cover some of the cost. It doesn't cover the whole thing. But, um, but if that's a challenge for you, then just take one. Because uh, I'd rather you pray Selfishly, I want you to just pray for me so you can have it. How's that? Um, but that's what those are for. It's a way to help you pray. It's a way to help start down cutting uh, like a river every day. Um, so uh, let me close with this. Uh, J.C. Ryle, he was the first bishop um, of Liverpool, actually, where he used to live. And he started off a little book, uh, which is called A Call to Prayer. There's actually about four copies over there as well, if you're interested. Uh, but he starts out uh, just this little short book like this. These are the first words of the book. He says, I have a question for you. It's contained in three words. Do you pray? And then a little later on, he writes, I ask whether you pray because there is no duty in religion so neglected as private prayer. Now, mind you, he's writing this in the the late 1800s. They didn't have Netflix and Instagram back then, so they struggled then too. (laughs) A little further on, he writes... What is the reason that some believers are so much brighter and holier than others? I believe the difference in 19 cases out of 20 arises from different habits about private prayer. I believe that those who are not eminently holy pray little, and those who are eminently holy pray much. And that's the image of that river downcutting. You know, every prayer like a river down cutting into the rock to create a canyon, little bit by little bit by little bit. And if I can quote Eugene Peterson one more time, every step and arrival, every prayer and arrival. And so let's be that church. Let's be those people who pray for each other every day that we'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Let me pray that for us now. Father, I pray along with Paul and Timothy for our church here in Los Angeles, for our doppelganger church in London, that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, that we would live lives that are pleasing to you, that we would be filled with strength and endurance and patience and thanksgiving. That those things would begin to just overflow out of us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.